The scripture today comes from the book of John. Whoops. All good. Uh, The book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? But Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the work that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Um, It's wonderful to see you all here. It's been a good uh, three years or so since I've I've last been down here. So I would have loved for you to have uh, seen my wife again and met our two new little additions to the family. But unfortunately, I've been upstaged by the uh, Wiggles concert this morning. So um, (laughs) daddy speaking in another another church is just not good enough. So... um, yeah, the excitement in the house was for other reasons. Um, anyway, uh, sorry to disappoint you, but uh, verses 12 to 14 won't be in this morning's talk. That is a, a whole other sermon of itself. But um, with that in mind, let's pray and um, we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for our time here this morning. I want to pray that um, you would speak to us, Lord, um, to our hearts and our minds that we may come to know you better, Lord, and as a result, live in faithful obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So there is a uh, a well-known ancient uh, parable. Um, It originates in India, but it's used by a lot of evangelists, and uh, it's included in the first chapter of Tim Keller's Reason for God book. And uh, the analogy is about these blind men uh, and the elephant. So it goes like this, in the king's courtyard there is an elephant and uh, there's four blind men trying to figure out what kind of creature it is. And so the first blind man, he puts out his hand and touches the wall of the elephant. And he goes, oh wow, uh, this creature, it's, um, you know, it's smooth, it's, it's wide, this creature is like a wall. Then the second blind man, he puts out his hand and touches the tusk of the elephant. And he goes, well, no, 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 this is sharp, this creature is sharp, it's like a spear. 
The third blind man, he reaches out his hand and touches the leg of the elephant. And he goes, oh, wow, how round, how tall. This creature is like a tree. And then the fourth blind man, he puts out his hand and touches the ear. And he goes, how wide, how thin. Um, You guys got it wrong. This creature is like a fan. And so the king, awakened by the commotion, he comes out onto his balcony overlooking the courtyard and um, an argument has broken out that just gets louder and louder with each blind man thinking his view was correct. So the king uh, enlightens them and he says, the creature is an elephant. Each man touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. Enlightened by the king's wisdom, the uh, four blind men reached an agreement. They said, this is correct. Each one of us knows only a part. To find out the whole truth, we must put all the parts together. Now, I use this parable and many other evangelists do because in the same way it is argued that the religions of the world each only has, have a grasp of the truth about God, about spiritual reality, but no one can see the whole elephant or claim to have a comprehensive vision of the truth. And I think this analogy is helpful because it represents uh, the view of many Australians who are agnostic, the kind of belief that uh, all truth, knowledge, morality is relative, meaning it's, it's not absolute. That there is probably a God or being or spirit of some kind out there um, but they don't believe that he or she or it is completely knowable. Therefore, it's not worth investigating what any of the world religions have to say. Um, and so they make their own way up. We make our own way up. Our own principles to live by, to live a good life. However, if anyone claims to have the truth about God, many Australians don't like that, right? Um, If anyone claims to have the truth, it's not considered inclusive, it's not considered tolerant. In fact, some would even go so far as to call it hate speech or bigotry. But while this might sound humble and tolerant to acknowledge our limitations, this statement is actually making a very strong assertion about the nature of God, about, about spiritual truth in general. To claim this view is the equivalent of saying you are the king that has the big picture of the elephant, the full picture, the comprehensive knowledge about God, and therefore you can tell people who's got it right and who's got it wrong. This is claiming to have the very knowledge that they say no one has and demonstrating the kind of arrogance that Christians are often uh, accused of. So although it might sound more tolerant than the rest, uh, this is illogical and it's hypocritical. In the end, every belief system is exclusive just like the others to choose one is to reject the others okay so truth by definition is exclusive now i'm not a philosopher i hope i haven't lost too many along the way but the big picture of the elephant is what you have to say you have to say that christianity is partly right other religions are partly right they're all partly wrong so i want this to be settled in our minds as we approach this well-known passage because Jesus makes some incredible claims about himself that directly challenge the worldview of our culture, of our Western society. So we're here in John 14 
And Jesus is in the upper room uh, with his disciples. So this is very near the end of his ministry before he's about to go and be crucified. And so they're quite confused. They're quite concerned um, as, as you read in chapter 13 um, because Jesus has said he's going to be betrayed, that Peter's going to deny him, that they're all going to take off. Um, and so there's a lot of concern in the room and Jesus is comforting them. So if you read with me again in verses 1 to 5, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am going you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so, as you'll see in verse 1, uh, in response to the fear, in response to the troubled heart, Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in me. So that's already a, a claim to be God. And that trusting in God is the antidote to fear. But he explains that they don't need to be concerned about his departure, that he's going to leave them because it is going to benefit them. But most importantly, he says, you know the way to where I am going. And in fact, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says uh, to his disciples, I'm telling you these things before it happens so that when it does, you will believe. So Thomas sets things up here in verse 5 where he says, Lord, how do we know, uh, we don't know the way, how do we know where you are going? And unfortunately, he's not realising that Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms, not earthly terms. And that's something we have to keep in mind throughout the rest of this passage. He's concerned about the destination rather than the way to get there. So when Jesus replies to him, the, the, the well-known passage here, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So this is the sixth of seven I am statements that Jesus, uh, that John uses in his gospel to describe Jesus' person and ministry. And so instead of the way being a place, we learn that the way to God is actually through a person. It's through Jesus Christ. It is by his life, death and resurrection that we can know God and receive access to him. He is the way, namely the truth and the life. So therefore, Jesus is saying here, here's the way, here's the only way. Christianity is not just one viable religion among many. This is an exclusive truth claim. Jesus is the way to know the truth. Jesus is the way to receive eternal life and a personal relationship with God. He is the way to receive salvation, receive forgiveness of sins, to receive the Holy Spirit and to one day enter heaven, the Father's house that he described in, in verse 2. So this, this is central to Christianity, this stuff. Earlier in chapter 5, John has said, those who claim to know God but reject Jesus do not know God. And then here Jesus has said in, in the second half of verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is pretty incredible stuff. As the truth, Jesus is the true revelation of God. He is the reality of God. This might be difficult to understand because these words way, truth, life, 
Um, they're not usually words we would ascribe to a person, but that's the point. You see, Jesus doesn't just speak the truth. He doesn't just know the truth. He is the truth. He is the embodiment of the truth of God here on earth at this time. So therefore, he is not just a good moral teacher, as some would call him. He is not just another prophet uh, where we like some of the things he says and not others. He's saying he is the very voice and revelation of God. And then when Jesus says, I am the life, in fact, in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. It is through Jesus that God gives people new spiritual life. He has eternal life himself and he is pleased to give it to those who repent and believe in him. And so, although our physical bodies will die one day, the relationship we can have with Jesus starts now and continues throughout all eternity. So the way, the truth and the life are three descriptions of the person and work of Jesus. He's basically saying, I'm the way you must follow, I'm the truth you must believe and the life you must hope in. So let me give you an illustration. There's a, there's a story of a, um, a missionary that needs to cross a real vast uh, desert area. Um, like think of the Sahara or something like that. And um, so he has to spend a bit of money hiring a tour guide. Um, so this guide's job is to just get him to the destination. So when the two men arrive at the edge of the desert, for some reason the missionary is kind of surprised. It's worse than he thought originally. I mean, there's trackless sands and each time the wind blows, you know, everything shifts again. There's no path, no markers. Um, there's not a single footprint of any kind. And so the missionary turns to the guide and says, where is the road? How will we know the way? And the guide, who's a little bit bemused by this, he looks him square in the eyes and replies, that's why you need me. I am the road. I am the way. And so I use this because so then is Jesus the only way to God. He is the way to heaven and the way through the unfamiliar territory of this life. Um, and we must trust him to take us there. The key point I'm, I'm saying here is that the way is a person. It is Jesus Christ. So if, if, if we're to start looking at, at, at how this applies to our lives, there's a lot of implications for this text. But um, basically the Bible says all human beings are born with a sinful nature and we are evidently lost. And although sometimes we think we have it all together, we might have life figured out in an earthly sense or a spiritual sense, uh, without Christ, the reality is we are confused. We are lost and we're sort of staggering around through life trying to find something to prop us up. Jesus is the only way out of this sinful state. The only one in whom you can put your trust and hope for your salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, I feel like uh, we need to realise that we can't spend our lives rationalising our sins like our culture does, like our people around us do because failing to realize um, that we can only enter on God's terms through Jesus Christ is the most important truth that we have to understand here as well as here. Following our own ways does not make us right with God. He has provided the way, the way out. Secondly, I often think that uh, Christianity is emphasized as a one-off faith decision and then life goes on. We sort of battle on by ourselves without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so I think with Jesus being the way, we need to realize that we need Christ every single day. 
We need him to help us to persevere to the end of our earthly lives. And so most importantly, Christianity is not just subscribing to a philosophy or a, a, self, a set of self-help principles in the Bible where we you know, take bits and others and leave others, but it is a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus didn't say, I am a way or I know the way. He said, I am the way. So my first question this morning is, do you really believe it? Is this the truth that your life is built upon? Or are there other influences? And secondly, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, are you still hoping in His promises for this life and the next? Or has the influence of the world around you started to affect your beliefs at times? If anyone is feeling spiritually lost here this morning, I want to encourage you that if you've lost your way, maybe this morning you can get reconnected. We would love to talk with you, pray with you, whatever you need. And so as we move on to the, uh, the last part of this, uh, this morning's passage, verses 8 to 11, this part is instigated again by a question from one of the disciples. This time it's Philip. And so after hearing Jesus say in verse 7, um, from now on you have seen the Father, from now on you know him and you have seen him, he says, well, Jesus, show us the Father and then everything will be fine. Then we'll be good. It's almost like an Old Testament um, reference, kind of like uh, Moses when he says, Lord, show me your glory. He says, show us the Father, Jesus, and then everything will be sweet. But Jesus makes an astonishing statement here, affirming that he can declare himself to be the way, the truth, and the life only because he is the Son of God. He is the incarnate Son of God. So as you can see here in the um, pamphlet, in verse 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then in verses 10 and 11, so twice, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. These are pretty incredible, once again, spiritual statements that are hard for our finite minds to understand a little bit but we're starting to get an understanding of the Trinity, of who God is, about Jesus' unique sonship being the incarnate Son here on earth in front of the disciples. But regardless of how difficult it is, it helps us to understand God better. But let's be clear, Jesus is claiming here to be the Son of God. And this is a claim that no mere man can make. I mean, think about it. Who here in this room can put their hand up and say, if you have seen me, you have seen God. It is a very, very drastic statement. Not a single founder of another religion ever made this statement. Muhammad didn't, the founder of Islam. Siddhartha Gautama, later known as Buddha, he didn't. None of them. In fact, the only people unwise enough to ever claim to be divine have usually been weird leaders of of sort of culty bad times who have been trying to change their own rules to get 10 wives instead of five or something like that. And so Jesus says here in verse 11, believe in me, like he did in verse 1, believe. You must believe this truth. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And he appeals to not just his words, not just the words that he is saying, the teaching he is giving the disciples, but also his works. And what works refers to in the original language is miracles. 
So Jesus, at the end of his ministry, here in the upper room, he's speaking of these things, and the disciples have seen him. Let's not forget in the Gospels that uh, there are many signs. There are the countless healings. There's Jesus raising three or more people from the dead. There is him reading people's hearts and minds during discussions and arguments. He exerts full authority over nature when he quiets the storm, when he walks on water. What are absolute miracles for us as human beings were just ordinary works for the Son of God. And this is well summarised in in chapter 1, verse 18 of John, when he writes, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, This is the reason why he was killed by the Jewish authorities. This is the reason why he was crucified. It was for blasphemy. It was not for what he did because they couldn't fault that. It was for who he claimed to be. And so it leaves us with this crucial question of what do we make of Jesus? The Jesus of Nazareth who has claimed to be the way, the truth and the life and the incarnate Son of God. Um, so I want to refer to a, uh, a concept called the, the Lord, Liar or Lunatic, which was um, made famous by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity uh, in the 1950s. H- hands up, as, uh, have people heard of that? Okay, that's good, that helps. So basically, C.S. Lewis's vital point here is that uh, Jesus directly claimed to be God And it makes no sense to conclude, as many people do, that he was just a good moral teacher or a prophet. He doesn't leave that open to us. So therefore, there are only three options. He is either the Lord, the liar, a liar, or a lunatic. And this is eliminating the fact that what's written about Jesus is not legend. The Bible has been heavily critiqued for 2,000 years and it's held up to be historical eyewitness accounts. So firstly... If Jesus was a lunatic, then perhaps he mistakenly thought himself to be God, right? Perhaps um, he was very sincere, but he was wrong. I mean, let's be honest, most of the people that make claims like this are in Greylands Hospital in Perth right now. You know what I mean? I don't want to make light of it, but it is a crazy claim. And yet Jesus said these things in the context of a fiercely monotheistic Jewish context their culture was to repeat Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema. The, the Lord our God, the God our God is one. The Lord our God, the God our God is one. And Jesus is saying these things. However, in light of the many things we know about Jesus, it is extremely difficult to imagine that he was mentally disturbed. The words he spoke are arguably the most profound ever recorded. So a well-known psychologist, Gary Collins, after analysing the Gospels closely, he concluded this. He said, Jesus was loving, but didn't let compassion immobilise him. He was often surrounded by adoring crowds, but didn't have a bloated ego. He maintained balance despite a demanding lifestyle. He always knew what he was doing and where he was going. He cared deeply about people, including women and children, who weren't considered as important back then. He was able to accept people while not merely ignoring their sin. He responded to individuals based on where they're at and what they uniquely needed. 
All in all, I don't see any signs that Jesus was suffering from any known mental illness. Matter of fact, he is much healthier than anyone I have ever met. So if Jesus wasn't a lunatic, then perhaps he was a liar, okay? Perhaps he was making these claims even though he knew that he was not God, therefore deliberately deceiving his followers. Now this would have been entirely hypocritical for a few reasons, given that he taught others to be honest, whatever the cost. It would be extremely evil given its deception and it would have been foolish because he could have avoided his brutal death on a Roman cross if he backed away from this claim at the last minute. This conclusion doesn't match what we know about Jesus or the effects of his ministry at all. So historian Philip Schaff says this, he says, how could an, an imposter, that is a deceitful, selfish, depraved man, have invented and consistently maintained from beginning to end um, the purest and noblest character in history with the most perfect air of truth and reality? How could he conduct himself in such a caring, perfect and sinless way while carrying out such an awful plan that included him and his followers dying for a lie? It just does not seem remotely reasonable or possible. So if we agree that Jesus was not a lunatic and he was not a liar, then the only option left is that Jesus is Lord. And this is exactly what he claimed. And from the beginning of the early church, after his ascension into heaven, his believers began praying to him as God. These same devout Jewish men and women began praying to him just as he taught. Therefore, if this is the truth, the most loving thing we can do is live this out and share it with others. Yet when contending for the truth, there are some aspects to that to do with our culture, which I want to briefly unpack here. So if people ever ask you, oh, where did Jesus actually claim to be God? He never really, he never really did that, right? So uh, I've had skeptics ask me this question. Uh, Muslim friends ask me this question. Um, and sometimes, you know, people genuinely seeking Jesus will ask you this question. John 14, particularly verses 6 and 9 here are a good place to start. But the whole of John's gospel has many, many occurrences where Jesus claims to be God. So do the other gospels. If people miss it, it's probably because it's in the context of the Old Testament and Jesus fulfilling that as the King and the Messiah in the line of David. And it's, it's not as overt as what he says here. It's not as clear as what he says here. So our culture does not like this message that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. They feel it is unverifiable and exclusive. But let's be honest, our culture accepts a lot of dodgy spiritual hoo-ha that uh, is very unverifiable itself. I'm talking about astrology and star signs. Um, there's this weird lady that's on the Daily Show every week telling you about your life based on, uh, based on the horoscopes and whatnot. Um, we have got people seeing mediums. We've got friends telling us that their loved ones are speaking to them and guiding their lives from the grave. We've got Hindu yoga worship. And then in high schools and unis, we have science teachers and atheists claiming again and again that through evolution we went from goo to you via the zoo. And yet believing in Jesus to be the Son of God is unreasonable? I mean, 
I don't see it. So as, as Ravi Zacharias, arguably the, one of the greatest evangelists that is in the world right now, travelling the world, contending for the faith, he says, God has put enough into the world to make faith in him a reasonable thing, but he left enough out to make it impossible to live by reason alone. Faith is a trust in Jesus. Now, I also don't want to push this too far, especially not if you're sitting here this morning and, and, and you, not, you are not a follower of Christ. Here's the thing, we, we don't want to be unnecessarily harsh. Truth and love go together and the New Testament calls us as followers of Christ to do both. You get too far down one end of the spectrum, truth without love or love without truth, and you start to get lost. So it's difficult, but thankfully we have the Holy Spirit to help us in these situations. I simply want to highlight the fact that it is okay to agree to disagree with someone and I also want to contend that the truth about Jesus and the gospel really, really matters to our lives. Did you know it is possible to love someone whilst absolutely disagreeing with their beliefs? That is real tolerance and it's what we used to have. The new, new definition of tolerance in the last 10 years is everyone has to believe the same thing or shut your mouth and keep it private. So as one of my favourite uh, street preachers, this guy called David Lynn, who's regularly sharing the gospel uh, in, in Canada. Um, he says this. He says, if you're a Muslim, then you are welcome in my house. My wife and I would love to sit down and make a meal for you. We would love to hear what you believe and why, get to know you, perhaps share the gospel with you. But if you start trying to teach my kids your ideology then we've got a problem and if, if you don't stop, I'm going to ask you to leave my house because the truth matters, right? It matters to my family. If you are a Hindu or Buddhist, you are welcome in my house. Like I said, my wife and I would love to get to know you but if you start trying to teach my kids your ideology, I'm going to ask you to leave my house. We can handle it as adults. Don't want you teaching your doctrine to them. If you are gay then you are welcome in our house. My wife and I would love to meet you and get to know more about you, but if you start to teach my kids your ideology, then I'm going to ask you to leave my house. That crosses a line where the truth and love matters. If you are a supporter of the Fremantle Dockers, <laughs> I'll, I'll end the illustration there. Lord, help me. What I'm saying is we can have good relationships with people who hold different ideologies without minimising the fact that, sorry, without minimising the fact that what we believe matters a lot. So I'm going to conclude here with this. What we believe manifests, manifests itself in our lives, in our thoughts, our words and our deeds. You can tell by the results. So we live in an age of relativism where many people commit to this belief the truth is a matter of opinion and morality is a matter of personal choice. And yet, from where I'm standing, the results of this in people's lives are horrible. It pains me to watch people I really love and care about self-destruct as they worship themselves by pursuing whatever they want, whenever they feel it, whatever that means. I'm seeing friends and family grow more and more miserable the more self-centred they get. 
the more they worship themselves or something else of this world that is not God. Many of them are unsure of their purpose, insecure about their identity, and riddled with guilt from their sin and their past. I see people getting addicted to things that were fun at the start, but now they are enslaved to it. It controls them. I've seen too many broken relationships and divorces that were fueled by the idea that you've just got to do what makes you happy, even though everyone gets the opposite. Even though everyone gets deeply hurt and bro- broken, especially the kids. This isn't it. We have the good news. Following our own ways, our own sinful beliefs will wreck us physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually. But praise be to God that there is a way out of this mess and out of this confusion. There is only one way to receive forgiveness for our sins and begin a new life in relationship with God and Jesus is the way. Jesus is that way. He didn't have to come down and meet us face to face, but out of love he did. The cross provided atonement for the sins of the entire world so that the offer of salvation that Jesus provides is in fact the most inclusive offer of all. We just come as we are. Believe in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. Lord God, that you have made yourself definitively known 2,000 years ago through your son Jesus and that by your spirit you continue to call us, you continue to transform lives, change hearts and draw us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to share this gospel through how we live but also through our words because that is important too. Lord, I want to thank you for this church here in Fremantle. I want to thank you for the tireless work of Andy and Lee and the ministry that has continued to grow here in the last few years. And Lord, I pray that this church, this community of people who love you, Lord Jesus, would continue to, in truth and love, share the gospel with those around them. And Lord, we pray that many lives would continue to be transformed, that they would come to know who you are, Lord Jesus, and the salvation that you provide. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Jesse. If you go ahead and